Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 19 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. Today is episode three of our four-part series, all about FASD, professional insights and perspectives with Dr. Jared Brown. Jared Brown, PhD, MA, MS, 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 is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching college courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies, AIAFS, and the editor-in-chief of the Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorder, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. Today's episode is titled FASD and Confabulation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode three of All About FASD with Dr. Jared Brown. I am prepared with many sheets of writing paper and a couple of pencils because I take so many notes during Dr. Brown's episode. He is a such a resource and um, we are so thankful to have him, um, you know, as an ally and as a support in the FASD community. Today's episode is FASD and confabulation, which is a big, big topic I know in many parent groups, many caregiver support groups. So on that introduction, welcome back, Dr. Jared Brown. Natalie, thanks for having me back. Honored to be here and looking forward to talking about this really important, confusing, challenging, stressful, just devastating topic in a way in some cases. And I'll give a lot of examples why that is. Yes. So let's just jump right into that. Why is this so important for people to know about confabulation? And let's just start like with the basics, kind of like confabulation 101 and, and why our listeners need to know this is such a relevant topic and such an important topic when it comes to individuals with FASD and other brain-based diagnoses. You bet. So confabulation is a type of false memory. It is not the only type of false memory, but it is pretty common among people with FASD, among other disorders as well. And it can oftentimes really look like that person is telling the truth on the surface. But to that person, they're going to believe what they're going to be saying to you or somebody else. So a confabulated memory can be completely imagined by that person. So just something invented in their mind that they don't necessarily realize that maybe they've invented it. So in the research literature, if you dig into this, it's been called honest lying because again, it, it could be partially true. It could be taken out of temporal context, which is just a fancy way of saying maybe someone with FASD who confabulates tells you a story this morning, you later find out they're talking about something that happened two weeks ago, two years ago, or whatever. That could be a form of confabulation that's kind of taken out of context when it comes to time. 
confabulation could be inspired by popular media, watching a certain movie, listening to a song. Maybe it's at school and they overhear a conversation with another student and then they come home and they report it as being truthful. And a lot of times confabulated memories can be just really minor subtleties that are kind of twisted a little bit. In some cases, I do a lot of work in the area of the criminal justice world. When confabulation is entered into that system, that can cause a host of issues, miscarriages of justice, someone admitting to something they didn't do, like a crime. What happens if it's a witness to an event and they have a confabulated memory? It gets really challenging and concerning. It could be drawn from personal experiences too, but the memory gets jumbled up by all kinds of other memories that are false. So it's difficult to tell what is truly going on here. It can be a false memory, obviously taken out of temporal context. It can be inspired by a host of secondary factors, overheard conversations. Maybe you have a loved one who has FASD who's in group treatment for whatever, drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's treatment for mental health. People with FASD in a group treatment setting are going to be more likely to confabulate because the more stories they hear and the more people that are around, they take in all this information. So it's very, very important to understand this topic. A lot of causes for confabulation. Obviously, the damage caused by prenatal alcohol exposure can damage parts of the brain that can increase confabulation. But I do want your listeners to realize too that confabulation kind of is a normal phenomenon among human beings in general, depending on the circumstance and what's going on. But people with these neurocognitive, neurodevelopmental disorders usually are going to be more prone. And when we think of FASD, obviously it's a type of brain injury caused in utero. Even if someone has executive functioning impairments, so problems with reasoning, decision-making, logic, um, abstract reasoning, understanding cause and effect, being able to fact check what they're saying, or maybe they have low levels of inhibition, which is our internal parking brake, and they're just, their thoughts are racing and they're going so fast. And it's like a car out of control. They don't have the brakes to put put the brakes on, think, pause, and reflect. They may just start saying things that they have no idea if it's true or not. And then the more they say it, the more they internalize and they believe it to be true. So to them, what they're saying is truthful, but maybe to the outside observer, you can clearly tell that this is absolutely not a true situation going on. Now, however, confabulation can oftentimes look real as well. So it can be very difficult to tell. But if you go through this research literature, and there's been all kinds of studies on confabulation in general, there's only been a couple articles that have talked about confabulation within the context of FASD, a lot of caregiver accounts, professional observations, things like that. But if you look at the confabulation research literature, sometimes a confabulated statement memory can sound very believable the person can absolutely be extremely confident in their memory. And it is very clear from the research on memory that confidence doesn't equal accuracy. So just because someone is saying, I absolutely saw that, that absolutely happened, 
Competence does not equal accuracy. On the other side of the spectrum, in some cases, confabulation can absolutely just sound like a very absurd story that just sounds very bizarre and is absolutely clear that this person is making up some kind of statement or story. It almost seems like fairy tale like or delusional. But then on the other side of the spectrum, it can seem very believable and plausible. So that's why this gets very tricky to understand this topic. I'll kick it back to you, Nellie. Any thoughts on that? I, we'll go a lot deeper into all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, first, I, I forgot to mention, um, Jared was on last week's episode of FASD Family Life with Robbie Seal, and your topic was FASD in abstract reasoning. And you mentioned that in this answer. So I just want to redirect listeners. If you haven't heard that episode of uh, FASD and abstract reasoning with Robbie Seal and Dr. Brown, please go listen to it because I think it'll tie in. It's a great episode and it will tie into today's discussion about FASD and, and confabulation. So that's my first point. My second point is I took something, I, I always take notes, you know, when you talk, Jared, just because I learned so much from our discussions. So this is really interesting. And when you said, in group treatment settings, when an individual has an FASD and they're in group treatment settings, they're more likely to confabulate because they're hearing stories, they're hearing things from other people in that setting. And it's almost like an inception of the thought. It stays in there. I Sometimes my husband and I would talk about this and we refer to the movie Inception. You bet. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio, where a thought is implanted in his mind and you know you can't get it out. And that almost seems like a kind of a Hollywood version of, of how confabulation is. It's really a thought has been implanted and that individual genuinely believes that that's real. Um, would, would you yeah. say that's a, a, a decent comparison? I think that would be a, an absolute good layer. Now, it could be inserted into that person's mind unknowingly. Yes. Maybe they're being interviewed by a professional and that professional is interviewing in a way that they're asking a lot of leading questions, forced choice questions like yes or no, true or false. That's very bad. Don't do that. Definitely. There's a lot of causes for this. Again, we got to think about what is going on with that person's memory. Do they have really bad memory in general? Could that be a factor where they're trying to fill gaps in their memory and they're asked a question, but they can't come up with what's going on to give the accurate response. They fill it in with something that might be inaccurate. So they're trying to fill in that gap in the memory because they don't want to come off as maybe incompetent. So it might be a way to preserve their sense of identity and self-esteem. And they don't even realize they're doing that in some cases. Maybe they do realize it too. Along with those answers, Jared, what are some other reasons and coming from a brain-based science perspective, what are some other reasons why individuals with FASD confabulate? Memory problems, executive functioning impairments, if they have frontal lobe damage, maybe the person with FASD has also had a brain injury at some point in their life because they've made really bad decisions, gotten into fights, used drugs or alcohol, something on that nature. There's something called reality monitoring and source monitoring. You have to understand those topics. Source monitoring deficits is when someone 
gets the source of their memory mixed up. Did I actually witness that myself or did I overhear it in a conversation or did I read it in a book or magazine or did I see it on the news that night? They get the source of that memory mixed up. Reality monitoring is, did I actually experience that or did I dream that? And we know some people with FASD may be more fantasy prone and storytelling. And so it's very important to understand those two topics. What about if they have autobiographical memory deficits? You're going to find some research on this too. Autobiographical memory is the memory of ourselves. Do we remember important dates, events, anniversaries, weddings, funerals, graduations, things like that? That helps us become who we are. If we don't have those memories, it's hard to establish a sense of self and identity. Confusion could be a factor. If someone's just outright confused, again, that goes to the fact maybe they don't have the ability or they're afraid or embarrassed to say to the person, I don't know what you're asking. I don't know the answer to that. And they just go along with it and they start giving stories and they start sharing these stories and they grow with time and the person just starts believing them. What happens if the person doesn't trust their memory? There's something called memory distrust or memory distrust syndrome. You'll find in the research literature more related to suggestibility. But if someone doesn't trust their memory, they may go along with the crowd. They may go along with that person in the position of power. And they just assume their memory is better when, in fact, in some cases, that person may not have their best intentions in mind. And confabulation can be provoked through high-stress interviews, too, in general. So if someone's being interviewed in a very high-stress situation by a police officer, maybe it's during cross-examination if they're sitting on the stand as a defendant or a witness. Maybe they're in a job interview. And they're just absolutely nervous, social anxiety. They can't come up with the right words and they start saying things that aren't true. But to them, it is true. And then later that employer finds out, could that be a factor on why the person may get reprimanded or fired for providing false information? But they didn't intend to do that. So the, the key, I think the key takeaway point when you think about confabulation is that the person absolutely has no intent to deceive. So that's not a conscious intent. So they're not intending to mislead the person. They believe what they're saying is true, even though it's not true, or it's partially true, or it's taken out of temporal context. That is one of the biggest differences between confabulation and FASD and lying, because we know when somebody lies, it's there's the intent to, you know, misinform, to not tell the truth. But you just said right there with confabulation, there is no intent on lying with all of these answers and, and factors that you've given us. There's a number of reasons why that person's brain will confabulate something. So it sounds like one of the biggest differences or probably the primary difference between confabulation is lying is, is the intent. Are, what are some other differences between confabulation and lying? And, and it, particularly when we're talking to parents, caregivers, loved ones of those with FASD, I often hear, um, you know, my child is lying. And, uh, you know, when someone explains a situation further, it, it truly does sound like confabulation. Can we talk a little bit more about the difference between confabulation and lying? Yeah, the intent is at the core. 
is there a secondary gain? Is the person trying to get out of doing chores? Are they trying to get out of going to school? Something like that. Now, in some cases, someone could be lying about something and the story grows. They're more fantasy prone. They have a lot of storytelling abilities. I'll give you a good example. A um, client I worked with, a case I consulted on previously, this person had FASD, high level of fantasy proneness, had just a long history of engaging in excessive social media use and was very isolated. This was an adult person. They were isolated a lot. They didn't have a lot of friends. So they didn't understand the concept of friends and decision-making. And they were an adult, an adult body with a childlike mindset and a childlike brain. So they had all these wild stories and it was so tough to know, was this person lying were they just trying to preserve their sense of identity and self-esteem where they, they knew that they were struggling, but they didn't want to admit that. And they said they had all these friends and then you dig deeper and they didn't. Got really confusing for the people involved. This person also had a very active inner life and had a long history of gossiping and just sharing information about other people. So it just got so jumbled up, I think, in this person's mind where maybe it started out as a lie and then it ended as a confabulation and a little bit every everything in between. The, the key is it is difficult to know with 100% certainty, but I the best takeaway points, everything I've learned over the years, fact check and verify. Don't rely on yes or no questions or true or false. If possible, check with collateral sources of information that's obviously imperative, especially if someone comes involved in the criminal justice system or mental health arena. Don't just take what that person's saying on face value. It's still important, obviously, to hear their story, but fact check, verify, look through that lens of their developmental and emotional age rather than their chronological age. And understand too that everyone with FASD is going to have executive function and adaptive functioning deficits too. And now what happens if the person's had an extensive history of trauma? We know trauma is very common. And we did that recording several weeks ago on FASD and trauma, recommend checking that out. But if someone has all of these secondary issues going on, trauma, depression, anxiety, sleep issues, it's just fuel on the fire and it makes it more and more complicated. So it's tough to, I don't want to leave people hopeless, but read about this topic, dig deeper, stay curious. If you hear that you really suspect your child or adult child is lying, maybe they are in some cases, but maybe they're not. Maybe there's something else going on here. Dig deeper, follow that story over a period of time to listen to it. Try not to kind of steer them down a certain path because then that can reinforce that false memory too. And that can be even more entrenched in their memory. So I think stay curious, be careful in how you phrase the questions too. Don't blame or shame. I think those are some just basic starting points if you want to dig deeper into these topics and kind of pull apart. Is it lying? Is it confabulation? Could it be elements of both going on? So Jared, you mentioned suggestibility in your last answer, and I think it's really important to know about the relationship between 
confabulation and suggestibility and what how it is connected and how it's not connected because as our kids grow older they're going to be more situations where the consequences are going to be more significant and and more impactful so i'd like if you can explain to our listeners about confabulation and suggestibility what the difference is and how they both can lead to each other yeah, if you study one, you have to understand the other. And we know from the research that people with FASD are going to be more suggestible typically than the general population. And many of the things I mentioned as it applies to confabulation applies to suggestibility. But we're all, again, suggestible on some level, depending on the situation. It really is a normal phenomenon. And it's influenced by several different individual factors that the person's dealing with and also external variables. Really think of it as a dynamic process, but it is a vulnerability. And when suggestibility is introduced into the information gathering phase of whatever a person's going through, if it's criminal justice system, mental health, the school arena, it really can impact the reliability of the information obtained from the person being interviewed, and it can lead to credibility issues. So when we think of suggestibility, just think of that person's willingness to accept suggestions from other people. Do they just go along with things and they now internalize it and believe it, and maybe they act it out accordingly? There's a big thing to consider when we think of suggestibility is uncertainty. How does that person handle uncertainty? People that really struggle with uncertainty, particularly during an interview, are going to be more prone to be suggestible. Are they, do they lack that ability to just handle the pressure of being interviewed? And they just don't like that feeling and they want to end that interview as fast as possible. And they say anything they can to get it done. And maybe it's tried trying to please that person in position of power in some cases. When we think of it too. Suggestibility can happen from intentional suggestion by like a third person. It could be unintentional. It could absolutely contribute to memory distortions and kind of fuel confabulated memories in some cases. If you introduce suggestibility into the criminal justice system, we need to take into account like false incriminating statements, false confessions, inaccurate testimony, Maybe they overreport something that didn't happen and they take extra blame for something. So they're kind of the fall person in an activity where maybe they're with other people and everyone contributed equally, but this person took extra blame. Maybe they're underreporting things and that could lead to a misdiagnosis in a clinical setting. So maybe if like mental health folks aren't taking this to account. It could be a factor in overdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, misdiagnosis. Maybe they're medicated for something they don't need. Maybe they're overmedicated, all of those things. So suggestibility, when introduced into any type of information gathering process, you really got to call into question the information being obtained. So a big question I'm always asked too is, what causes suggestibility in persons with FASD? Again, they're many and varied executive functioning impairments. They lack that kind of higher level of cognitive sophistication. So we really need to take into into account, do they have a childlike mindset? 
and the person interviewing that individual doesn't understand FASD, hasn't modified their questions and they're using more advanced vocabulary, the client with FASD doesn't understand it, but does not tell the person they don't understand it. So they just go along with it. And now they start internalizing all of these things. Are they prone to manipulation? So looking at this person's history, are, do they have a tendency to be manipulated easily by other people? So we need to also consider that topic of gullibility. Memory deficits, language problems, self-esteem issues, confusion, even chronic exhaustion and sleep deprivation, that inability to lack cause and effect. So going back to some abstract reasoning deficits, those are just a few of the factors that really show why this population is typically going to be more suggestible than people without FASD. And as always, I'm writing all of these uh, answers down, Jared. Are there any other variables that can um, increase an individual's suggestibility um, of a person who has been impacted by an FASD? Impaired decision making. Do they understand how to make decisions? Do they lack comprehension? Maybe they have problem solving deficits. Maybe they really struggle with confrontation. So, again, with confrontation, do they just, again, go along with everything, accept things at face value. We know from the research too, that this population is going to have higher levels of theory of mind deficits. Theory of mind relates to perspective taking and understanding the internal mental states of other people like wants, thoughts, needs, emotions, intentions. I am aware of some studies that have been published on FASD and theory of mind and some studies on FASD and suggestibility. I am not aware of any studies that have looked at FASD, theory of mind, and suggestibility together. But if you look at the suggestibility research literature, there have been a handful of studies that have looked at it within the context of theory of mind, but not within the context of FASD. But I definitely see that coming up as a variable to take into account. So let's say someone with FASD has theory of mind deficits, has higher levels of suggestibility. What are some things to be aware of if you're an interviewer? They may not pick up on those implicit demands of the the questions being asked, which then could limit their ability to detect kind of like suspicious behavior, stranger danger, malintent by others, those kind of things. And then they're going to be at a heightened risk to being influenced or manipulated by other people, which then puts them at greater risk for vulnerability, victimization, maybe being talked into doing something they shouldn't have done. And unfortunately, there can be overly trusting of people that might not have their best intentions in mind, thus leading to increases in suggestibility. So those are just a few of the variables to consider. And again, if you're an interviewer or your caregiver, just asking questions, just be aware of this topic. Be aware of not asking those forced choice questions, trying to not steer them down a certain path, asking questions in a manner that's going to be appropriately crafted for their emotional developmental and cognitive age. Because if we don't take these things into account again, it can absolutely lead to a host of issues for that person is that as that person gets older and less supports and structures are in place, unfortunately, we know a high percentage of these individuals are going to come into contact with the justice system or the mental health arena for some 
some reason. And unfortunately, in my experience, a lot of people, professionals who work in those settings, haven't had advanced training in FASD. So they're not doing anything intentional. They just haven't had the training on how to craft the questions or modify the approaches. So they're not increasing suggestibility in these clients unknowingly. So again, if you're working in these professions, get training in these topics because I think it's going to really help you regardless if it's someone with FASD or not. A lot of these things we're talking about today can be helpful with any special needs population. And as always, we'll be sharing Jared's email and information at the end of this episode. So if you are listening and if, if that does describe your vocation or, or you know your involvement in the FASD community, we can put you in touch with Jared so that he can um, help you with resources and learning more about that, not only for those in the justice system, but also for those in educational settings. You know, when, when kids are being called down to the principal's office and, and all of these factors apply in that situation too. So it's important for educators, administrators, anyone to be aware of how to ask these questions so that these factors that you mentioned don't start attributing to, you know, just don't start attributing to that individual becoming more, um, having more consequences. So Jared, we are really talking about confabulation, suggestibility, which all of these topics are really going to be helpful for our listeners. Let's talk about gullibility and how this all relates to individuals with FASD and um, just your feedback about gullibility. Yeah, there, there's some mentions here and there in articles about gullibility and FASD, but it is, just think of gullibility as a vulnerability. And I have read many articles on this. I can't remember where I heard this, but there's some authors that talk about gullibility kind of almost being the opposite of skepticism. So the person just, again, maybe is easily tricked or manipulated or scapegoated or cheated out of something or just more deceived. And some factors that can contribute to higher levels of gullibility are going to be those impairments in judgment, lacking insight, maybe it's lacking common sense, lower levels of social skill, developmental immaturity. If you introduce gullibility into a legal setting, that person may be easily talked into confessing to something they didn't do or over-confessing, taking more blame. Um, I, I often talk to caregivers and other professionals about the topic of shoplifting, ownership. That's a, th- a big issue for some people with FASD is getting into stealing behaviors. It's one of the more common reasons why these individuals come into contact with the criminal justice system early on in life. And I do suspect in some cases, gullibility should be a factor being considered. Are they dared into doing something, taking something from a store that could relate to gullibility? Do they struggle with ownership issues and they just don't understand the concept of ownership that can go down, relate to the topic of theory of mind? It can relate to the topic of abstract reasoning, those kind of things. But if we think about this within like the bad things that could happen with gullibility, that lack of awareness, the person maybe lacks the stranger danger, doesn't really pick up on the fact that someone's trying to manipulate them or exploit them. This could increase their level of victimization and exploitation 
maybe it's related to fraud cases in some some cases. There's been situations I've consulted on where the person gives away money to strangers online and they're just easily talked into doing things that absolutely don't have their best intentions in mind. I can think of a, a, a case I consulted on a while ago. This person had FASD, very suggestible, very gullible, had a tendency to tell all of these stories, but after digging deeper, they just, they didn't add up. There was no evidence to support the stories that this person was expressing. This was an adult client who lived in a group home dealt with high levels of fear. This person absolutely did not like people mad at him. So he always wanted to keep the peace. He always went along with people, people pleasing. He really dealt with impulsive decision-making as well. He lacked assertiveness. He had very low levels of confidence. So what is that person's level of confidence? If they deal with low, low levels of confidence, they may struggle with being assertive and speaking up when something isn't right. And the person had childlike tendencies and he was really motivated by external things. For example, he loved soda, pop and tobacco products. He would do anything to get those two products. He was so motivated by external things. So those are just a few variables with that particular case I consulted on. And in that case, gullibility was at play, suggestibility was at play, and it appeared that confabulation was at play. The group home workers thought he was lying all the time. I suspect confabulation was a variable that wasn't being considered. And now the group home workers thought this person was lying. They became frustrated and they approached it in a manner that maybe wasn't as helpful. So if you approach in a manner where you think the person's lying, defenses go up, we become more irritated, more frustrated. Another piece of advice, bring down the frustration, bring down the irritability, stay curious, keep the defenses down because someone with FASD can feel that a lot of times. And when you introduce a lot of stress into the mix, these things get even more challenging, just in my opinion. And this case study really reflects all three topics, what we're talking about today. So I'm actually going to alter the title of today's episode, not only about FASD and confabulation, but I'm calling it FASD confabulation and much more, because I really think that these three topics are so important for us to know as those who care for individuals with FASD, those who interact with individuals with FASD, and just really understanding the weightiness of, of these three topics. So um, as always, Jared, I, I really appreciate your feedback, your insights, and, and your experience in these areas. Not only did we talk about confabulation, but we also spoke about suggestibility and gullibility. So how can listeners learn more about these three topics? If you Google my name and type in confabulation, you should be able to find several different resources online. You can share my email with your listeners. I have a, a lot of different supplemental resources on these topics. I've given trainings on these topics often. I teach at the college level, so I try to infuse some of this into some of my classes. I think on YouTube, I, I have a few different videos on there from different organizations that talk about some of these topics. But I definitely want to leave everyone with hope that there are people out there that understand these topics that can help 
other professionals navigate these topics because when they understand these topics, better outcomes can absolutely happen. But when they don't understand these topics, I do think it can be a contributing factor for poor outcomes for people with FASD, particularly when they become involved in the criminal justice arena. And, you know, you already started going into a hope takeaway in in that last answer. First of all, Jared, thank you for, for, of course, being on our show, being on this episode. This is a weighty topic. Absolutely. And we, we actually spoke about three weighty topics, confabulation, suggestibility, and gullibility. What additional words of hope do you have for parents and caregivers of those teens, children, young adults with FASD? With the right modifications and the right team of professionals, and if the the group is really looking through an FASD-informed lens and taking into account the executive function, adaptive functioning, even theory of mind and confabulation, suggestibility and gullibility, I do think significantly better outcomes can result. Now, on the flip side of that, if these factors aren't taken into account and the person's being interviewed in a way that doesn't factor in these variables or deficits, if the person is being placed in a group treatment or a classroom where no one understands FASD, I absolutely see problematic outcomes resulting. Again, every case is so different, but you as the parent, the caregiver, you are that advocate know that there are people out there that understand these topics, shoot me an email. I'll send you some resources. I encourage you to keep learning about these topics. These are big topics and we're just scratched the surface with a lot of these variables today. And Jared, I am so thankful for you that you are such a resource for so many parents, caregivers, professionals, anyone who has anything to do with the FASD community. You are such a wonderful resource. And I'm so thankful that you are talking about these topics today. And I look forward to next month's conversation, episode four of our four-part series, all about FASD, Professional Insights and Perspectives with Dr. Jared Brown. And of course, we'll have Jared back on in 2022 because I'm, again, I'm just thankful for the work you do, the experience you have, and the knowledge that you're sharing with our listeners. So Jared, thank you as always for being on FASD Hope. Honored. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you, everyone. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.